Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 30. Small stopped us along the way, having Hannah Smith park under the shadow of a tall, weathered outcropping. Everyone was exhausted, and we needed rest. Small, Hockner, and I took turns on watch. I spent my time awake looking at the news, which was probably a mistake as it kept my mood solidly dark and gloomy. There was no sign of pursuit anyway, and we spent these hours in absolute peace before starting off again. Smith punched a long set of hack numbers into the starter's keypad. With a tiny finger wave, my retinals captured it on video. Force of habit, I supposed, even then, but maybe a little plan B of my own? By late afternoon... The open plains and intermittent scrubs were far behind us. We'd found another dirt road, this one badly rutted and difficult to traverse. It had the advantage, though, of running through a sterile evergreen forest that provided partial cover. Kilometers of identical trees bounced by with nary a break in the landscape. Biodiversity is an issue of great concern on even well-terraformed worlds, and this wasn't one. Tall green pines covered much of Barlow's northern and southern hemispheres, right up to the solid ice caps at the poles. The particular crop outside our truck hugged the mountains around like titanic lichen, and was the closest approach this density of growth had to the tropical belt. Variety within a biosphere was costly, since each species had to be adapted to a world's unique chemistry. A new world's forest was much cheaper to craft if you only planted a few basic varieties of trees. Then you could just sell prospective investors and settlers on the beauty and romance of the one big forest by monkeying up some pseudoscientific eco-projection studies. Show the marks some artsy vids, give them the old hard sell, and you were good to go. But less diversity with the plants meant less with the animals, and that got you quiet, peaceful monasteries for forests. Gen engineer a few hardy prey animals and one or two predator types with a fear of humans even more hard-coded than nature's, and you had yourself a macro life cycle that could easily stand for a couple of centuries just long enough for the terraforming corporation's warranty to run out. Barlow was at least a hundred years away from that sort of crisis, but it was coming. It had happened to a bunch of worlds already, and was always quite a scandal when it did. Any redress or environmental fix for this place would be battles all their own, but those battles wouldn't be mine. 
We suspected Dell's knee had been further injured in his fall back at the battle site. Only the nerve block and anti-inflammatories from my med kit, and from another we found on the truck, kept him in decent spirits. He'd need surgery when we got back to civilized space, but that seemed a long way off yet, and hard to even picture. I couldn't tell one mood from another with him, but he seemed okay for the moment. Carmi had actually had trouble relaxing when we were parked. Apparently staying still was just not her speed anymore, because she managed to wedge herself into a corner, draw up her knees, and fall sound asleep for a while, even as we dipped, rolled, dropped, and climbed over the hills and washboard ridges of the road. One especially hard bump made her finally look up with a snort and bleary eyes. How, uh... How long now? I moved to the window grating and repeated the question. About an hour at this rate, Small replied. But we're getting up to the frost line of the mountain, where the snow never melts. On a tundra world, that line is pretty low. This road might be a fight, but it turns on to a better one in about five clicks. Figure two hours to be sure, but I'm hoping for better. What's the status of your ship? Carmi had borrowed my rig about an hour before and talked to Ailareta's miniature, wavering, hollow form for a while in muttered tones, and then with Ben Roggenstins for a bit after that. It must have been an irritating chat for everyone involved, with her trying to express herself through the rolling pitch and sudden drops of the wilderness, but they'd been able to give her an update. They're looking at 12 hours until launch she called, joining me at the grate. They'll hold their breakaway until we dust off, if it looks like we really can. I'm reminding you now that the ship's safety trumps all other concerns. Griselda will wait for us if that gunship leaves it alone. Otherwise, it's making a run for it. Sorry about that, but this is not the cruise anyone had in mind. Oh, I'll echo that, the blonde man muttered. Ejok, what's the estimated transit time from this general area to that magical shuttle ride you've arranged? I'm waiting on confirmation, but likely it'll be back near the city somewhere. He considered that for a short bit, then pronounced, We could return in three hours flat in this vehicle if we took the highway and did a straight run. Revolutionary patrols aside, that sounds like a close call in the making. I think that's the only call we'll have. Do what you can to get an update on that front, please. I nodded and sat back near Dell, calling up the comm interface in my eyes. Immediately, I got an intrusion alert with an outside user knocking on my risk comp's link map. I got up again and shuffled back to the grating. Do you want to quit it with that crap? I barked making Hannah Smith glance over her shoulder with a start. Her face, always overcast, stormed up a bit at the news she'd been spotted snooping around the edges of my system. Hockner, sitting on the opposite window side, also glared at me, as if any hostility in my direction from anyone was licensed for his own. Small just nodded to her. She produced one of her advanced little data pads, which she'd had down in her lap, and keyed a few sequences with one hand while steering around a fallen tree with the other. 
The warning on my system changed status, indicating that the prowler had dropped off. It was possible, actually, that she'd sneaked in a snooper script, something I couldn't find without some effort. I tried not to care, since all my data and communication streams were heavily encrypted as a matter of course, but the act itself was rude, especially coming from an ally. Just keeping us all honest, Small remarked, turning back around. He hadn't bothered with a smile, so I didn't bother replying. I called the commissioner's number, getting a real-time list of exchanges and forwards, most of which were anonymous. After a bit, someone picked up, on audio only. Is it you? The old man sounded worried and tired, but careful for all that. Yes, ask me something. There was a pause, then, What was I doing when we last saw each other? You were outside the house, issuing orders. What was the dessert course at dinner? A foamed pudding. I don't recall what kind. Something called Frostberry, I supplied. And frankly, it was overrated. He chuckled and sighed with a grunt as he sat down, or so I supposed. I am gratified to hear from you. The same. I spoke with Sindra. Sounds like there was a close call. Yes. She is safe now, but the caravan was ambushed. At least half the community did not make it. Including some of her friends, I supplied, deliberately looking out the back window of the cab, seeing trees, only trees. He muttered a sad assent. I tried to call a few times, Commissioner. Are you safe? From the rebels? Yes. Other quarters are becoming a concern, but the two of us are ready when you are. I spied Small cocking an ear at the grate. The guy just couldn't mind his business. It was irritating, in and above his obvious duplicity, and I made to yell again, but Carmi intervened with a touch of my arm and a tiny shake of her head. A window of opportunity is opening in roughly twelve hours. They'll hold for us if they can, but there's no guarantee. If it's a choice between their safety and ours, they win. We're clear? Yes. Still, I thank you. I'm sending you coordinates. You name the time, and Sindra, myself, and the vehicle we spoke of will be at that location. Stay close, but stay hidden. Many will exit as soon as it arrives. You must wait for them to do so. Then you may approach safely. Understood. There should be eight of us arriving, if all goes as planned. This I said with a glance at Small, who caught my eye and nodded in agreement. That is fine, but will this number overtax accommodations on the other end? No, there's room for us all, though it won't be luxurious. Is that acceptable? Perfectly. We shall await your call. Please, be safe. I promised I would, thanked him, and closed the connection. It's set. I confirmed to the faux reporter, mercenary, wheel-turner. I have the where. We just tell them the when. As I spoke, I overlaid the new coordinates onto my map program and studied it in my eye view. It looks like, yeah, back in town. 
Then I guess we'll just have to hurry, Small concluded. Carmi, who had continued to watch and listen, moved next to Dell and me, huddling us together. Do we trust these guys? She whispered, glancing at the grate, and her gaze was that uncomfortable, penetrative one that I knew and strangely feared. We don't, I confirmed. Dell nodded almost imperceptibly. What are they after? She pursued. I don't know, but they think it's worth quite the risk. You'd think there'd be easier ways to make a living. That's what they say about spacers, Carmi injected. And it depends on the gain, Dell concluded. Well, we're only along for the ride, I observed. I made a deal with Mr. Small, and he'll see that I keep it. But you guys just keep your heads down. Griselda needs her crew. That includes you. Carmi said with authority, which isn't always the best approach with me. We were definitely climbing now, and I switched my risk comp map to an overlay of the mountains around us. Our current location was represented as a red dot, barely appearing to move beyond the surrounding icons. This section of the dirt track didn't appear on it at all all, even in a close zoom, but a bunch of buildings were marked at a higher elevation ahead. Looks like we're coming up on a hamlet or something, I informed my crewmates. A few of the buildings held annotations with owner names and exact addresses. One in particular was labeled a general store on what I hoped would be a better maintained road than the one we were currently bucking along. Almost as if on cue, our ground car heaved one last time under Smith's punchy guidance, then settled down to a considerably smoother ride as she turned hard right. With a throaty roar, the truck accelerated. Out the armor glass window of the rear hatch, I saw the forgotten little dirt track vanish behind some whipping scrub pine. We were now on a fuse bed road. Wider than the dirt course and much smoother, the map had a drop-down note about it, which I read. It had been put down by an automated rural road constructor back in Barlow's terraforming days. It showed a picture and some vid of a long, crawling machine that consisted of wide grinding and grading tools in the front. A super-hot, ground-facing plasma tongue that burned, melted, and fused bedrock and soil alike into a single surface in the middle, and a wide, heavy roller to smooth the molten stuff over, bringing up the rear. These kinds of roadways cracked as they cooled, forming a finely-grained surface of wheel-gripping fissures. They weren't meant to last forever, of course, just a few decades, so as to allow the new settlers to spread out quickly and set down roots. This one was a leftover from those early days and had to be quite old. According to the article, it had been built before the atmosphere was even breathable. It was in excellent shape for all that, or maybe just seemed like it was after the previous few hours. But either way, we were now making good progress. Ever-present ice and snow at this elevation made the driving slick, but the truck was especially designed for winter use, which was all Barlow had, 
and Smith navigated with a clear, if aggressive, assurance. I leaned to the grill again. You know this community we're coming to? It's hardly one at all, Small corrected. Mostly just second homes and getaways for romantic trysts. Pretty enough country, but there's little permanent settlement, and the owners of these lodges like their privacy. The elites, you mean? He shook his head sourly. I'm surprised at you, E-Jock, parroting the locals. Somebody has to run the planet. Show me a world that works any other way. What about our truck? I asked, avoiding that conversation. How likely are we to stand out? Will these people make a fuss if they see an armored ground car prowling around? I doubt it, Hockner injected in his slight accent, pointing at a cottage on the left that we were just coming up to. Cottage is actually a guess, because all that was left was a big, scattered pile of fiber core scraps, scorched, split, and flung hither and yon. Recent snow and sleet slicked it all, and icicles hung from the single crossbeam that still stood crookedly, catching the gray, fading light. Smith stopped the truck at her boss's order, and we all got out to examine the ruin, even Dell, who stepped down with Carmi's help and a grimace of pain. He continued to hold it as he looked at the damage in front of us. Moving through the low, wooden gate of a pretty picket fence that was still largely intact, we walked up to the remains of the building. Like a part in a dead man's hair, a rough trough had been cut straight down the center line of the place, with scrap and the shattered bits of someone's private dream house, randomly piled and broken and tossed high on both sides. I picked up a piece of board at my feet, which was jagged and splintered. Unexpectedly, it crumbled in my hand, as if it had the worst case of dry rot imaginable. What kind of bomb does this? I asked, utterly lost. Not the bomb, Hockner said, squatting on his meaty legs and squinting at the damage. Particle gun. Medium beam radius, looks like. Breaks down molecules around the blast point. The pronouncement was chilling. A particle gun was the man-portable Charpak's bigger, uglier cousin, used upon open battlefields in the many war zones throughout human space. Essentially, a modern adjunct to classic artillery, it was big enough to require mounting upon a vehicle carriage of some sort, or permanent anchorage in one place. This weapon was a well-established technology, usually brought to bear against highly armored line-of-sight targets, not upon quaint little cottages hidden away in picturesque mountains. I didn't know the Barlow Army had an artillery branch, I commented. Small's face was grave and drawn. It doesn't. True twilight was yet a couple hours off, but the time of day and the weather combined to drape us all in monochrome. I caught Carmi's distressed features as she looked around. Her eyebrows were closely drawn, her forehead wrinkled with an agitation that she otherwise kept well controlled. The trees were silent and snow-covered, and the road continued on up in a slight grade, 
then turned to the right, out of sight. Hockner was studying the entire scene with detachment. He finally pointed away from the front of the house and up in the air a bit. I thought he was indicating a set of tall pines across the road, but when I walked up behind him, I could see that the two trees directly across from the house had had their tops sheared right off. A lonesome hill, maybe two kilometers away, lurked in the mist. On it was built a large home, half obscured in the creeping shadows of the mountains, yet it had a distinctly familiar, rustic aspect. No big guns in view, I muttered, then glanced at Small. Sure you want to press on? Oh, yes. It came out as a breath, as a whisper, and that barely restrained fierceness was back again, a furnace fully serviced and ready for a spark, endless fuel in the waiting. His tone and plain determination preempted any arguments, so we piled back into the transport and pressed on, Smith taking it much more slowly now. Between the sobering sight of the attack and the slowly failing light, we had good reason for caution, and I was once again happy to see that Small had collected a really professional, if likely a moral, team. The short woman edged up the road and around to the right. It continued on for twenty meters or so, turning left again, where it opened up on a slightly wider stretch. Here, the trees had been cleared out long ago, and houses were set in place upon smart little plots. There were maybe six or seven of them within easy view, and each one had been given the same treatment as the first cottage. One side of the wide, terraced avenue facing the high house in the distance was completely open, with not even one tall pine to interfere with any of the shots. Hockner confirmed, with a quick assessing eye as we passed by them, that each had been struck from the same point of origin. Debris littered the road, but we either steered around or went over it easily, until we came to a pile of rags that, upon closer approach, appeared to be part of a body, ripped apart and frozen. Man or woman, it was hard to say, and no one seemed inclined to get out and look, so we moved on. There should be a general store up ahead, Small stated quietly. The road dipped a bit, serpentining again, then opened upon a wider spot. This area was hidden from the distant house by a high ledge, which might also have shaded the place from the evening sun on clearer days than this one. Snow and ice, as well as large and small slabs of stone, choked the avenue entirely. There had obviously been an avalanche of no small proportion. The truck could go no further, and Smith brought it to a halt before a high mound of rubble. Upon exiting, I looked up at the peak far above to see where it had all fallen from, but those elevations were shrouded in a cold, concealing mist. How far away is that store? I asked Small, who stood contemplating it all with even features. He waved vaguely at the highest mound of the rubble, right at the base of the mountain wall, then turned to the group as a whole. We have to hike it from here, 
You three, he stated to Carmi, Dell, and me, need to come with us. No, I don't think... Carmi started to reply with the complete ease of one long used to authority, but I cut her off. Okay, no problem. The blonde man nodded, then walked off to join his group, who were fetching their equipment from the truck. What was that for? The captain demanded softly once he was out of earshot. Dell can't climb these rocks, and this part of the mission isn't our business at all. They won't let us alone with the truck. We might leave without them. I'd never order that, she said sourly. No, but in our place, he would. I replied with a nod towards the fake reporter, who conferred with his people as quietly as we were doing. He can't risk us leaving until he's sure his other escape plan, whatever it is, will work. What do you mean? What plan? His two comrades, Dell supplied with a firm nod. He sent them off to do something. One of them is a starship pilot, I added. Maybe there is another ship on planet after all, but if so... They don't have it yet. How can you be sure? Dell asked, glancing at the others who now seem to be waiting for us. Because we're still alive. This is easily the second worst cruise I've ever had, Carmi muttered matter-of-factly. Only the second? I queried. Well, number one ended with a wedding ring on my finger. Open combat doesn't even compare. I laughed out loud at that, and Small's team gave me a puzzled and irritated glance that seemed to demand silence and severity. But even Dell smiled with rare good humor. Our broker could stand on his own okay, so the captain went inside the truck for our med gear and the last of the rations while I made a show of checking over my panther. In a minute, we all started off hobbling, scrambling, and hopping over the boulders and rubble in the fading light. Dell grimaced more times than I could count as he slipped on loose, icy stones or twisted his leg even just a bit. He now wore the last nerve block available, though I suspected Small and company had more of the things reserved solely for themselves. But its effectiveness was limited under these circumstances and I wondered if it was doing any good at all. Rocks were simultaneously welded together by ice and treacherously slick. Even the solid-looking stuff was unreliable. One large slab I stepped on broke right in half, and then crumbled away like a sandcastle, confirming this avalanche was no natural disaster. We passed the shattered remains of three more buildings on the other side of the mound. One of them looked like it had caught fire after being hit. The attack might have happened either during or right before snowfall because it hadn't spread or even consumed the fiber core much. I quickened my pace and caught up to Hockner, who carried his heavy pack easily. Let me ask you something. Do particle guns tend to burn their targets? He glanced at me with a raised eyebrow and a smirk. I thought you were a gunner. In space, yeah, I'm trained and certified, but I've never targeted anything in Atmo. And I'm usually shooting from, well, a long way off. It's a whole different animal, believe me. He conceded the point with a shrug, then hooked a thumb back at the last set of ruins. 
It depends on the gun and the target. I have seen fire start, yes. The weapon that did all that has a pure stream. What's that mean, then? What form factor does the gun have? He turned the question over a bit, then shrugged again. Its prime function is probably precision armor penetration. It is not out in the open right now, so it has to be mobile. Perhaps a tank? A gunship? It could be nearly anything. No, I replied with a glance at Small, who was leading the way out of earshot. Whatever it is, it's one thing in particular, and you were hired specifically to deal with it. He gave me a frowning glance as we walked, looking confused and irritated, but I pressed on anyway. Think about it. You're a specialist carrying some complex anti-armor hardware, and you've been brought halfway across Alliance space. Something sitting over on that hill did all this. He's not telling us everything. He is the boss. He does not have to. That sounds like famous last words, I replied with a shake of my head, then dropped back to Carmi and Dell, who were straggling. The road continued on past the remains of the small village, up into the open, away from masking ledges and trees. Ahead of us, it dipped into a wide, shallow valley and continued on, climbing to the secondary peak, where the house sat in silence. Small stopped us with a raised hand. The building over there was a bit higher in elevation than the road we stood upon, and at least a kilometer away. The valley before us was draped in darkness, and the road through it was covered in snow and completely invisible. The drifts might have been deep, but I thought I could see some shrubs and boulders standing out here and there. The sun had finally ducked behind the range, and we stood in deep shadow. Small and his team broke out passive light amplification glasses. These were simple but effective eye-cup lenses. Inviting a headache, I activated the light amp functionality of my retinals, bringing up a gray field of vision that revealed my surroundings in watery detail. We couldn't see them before, but two outbuildings, like large sheds or small barns, were now visible sitting behind the place. The house itself bore dim lights in several windows. These were otherwise masked by smoky privacy screens, hiding all details within. We gathered at the lip of the road, right where it began its descent into the valley. Small and company spoke quietly, while Griselda's own did the same. I really don't like this, Carmi stated bluntly, emphatically. I thought the others might have overheard her, and also that this was her intent. What is that on the side? An aircar? Dell asked, pointing to the silent and shadowed house. I followed his finger and spied a small, sporty thing under an extended overhang, its elevation above us allowing it to catch one last glint of the sun. Somebody's home, then, I pronounced, and I'm guessing they wouldn't like visitors any more than they like the neighbors. Hockner moved off obliquely behind a boulder and began to unpack his hard case. Small stepped over to me. 
Brock is setting up on this ridge. I think your crewmates should remain with him while the rest of us move in. I nodded and he turned back to his people. Hockner's railgun was a complex thing to assemble, but he was well trained and had it together in just a couple of minutes. Appearing like a single tube, clearly extensible, maybe four meters in length, and supported by six fold-down feet, the weapon was surrounded by concentric metal rings and support bars running its entire length. A small, unadorned box, rugged in design, sat off to the side, tied into the system by a short, superconducting cable. It hummed quietly, holding an integrated, fast-charging capacitor system, fed by an onboard microfusion generator. Taken as a whole, the system looked nothing like a recognizable gun. It was an expensive set of hardware all the same, pure special ops stuff, and likely hard to come by in the civilian sector. I stopped myself short then and turned to Carmi. That guy might get shot at. I said quietly, motioning to the big man who squatted behind his elaborate machine, fiddling with settings, expertly sighting the house. And I don't know what by. Keep your distance from him and your head down. She nodded with a serious face, then stepped forward suddenly and gave me a hug. Dell, in turn, offered a meaningful squeeze of the shoulder while matching my gaze his countenance unperturbable even here, even now. Then I turned to the tall man and short woman who were already hiking carefully down the snowy road and trudged to catch up. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.